listeners to Connect the Dots. I'm Allison Rose Levy, and I'm here with you every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. Our show begins uh, with a uh, excerpt from Bobby McFerrin's The Garden, um, and you know it's very. I think it's always apropos <clears throat> because. For all the trappings of civilization that we live with and become sort of entangled with and surrounded by and that are, you know, we're interactive with and everything, there is this larger context um, of nature and the earth and the growing and living things uh all of them, of which we are one species. And so we're going to kind of go a bit deeper into um, that dimension today with my guest, um, who I'm really thrilled to have with us. Um, His name is Martin Shaw. He's a Ph.D. and the author of Courting the Wild Twin, a new book published by Chelsea Green. He's written many books, including the Myth Teller Trilogy and one called Cinderbiter. <laughs> what a wonderful name for some reason, with Tony Hoagland. Um, Martin Shaw is an acclaimed scholar and author and director of the West Country School of Myth in the U.K. Um, he created the Oral Tradition and Mythic Life courses at Stanford University here in the U.S., and he's guided wilderness rites of passage for 20 years. Um, I've read uh, his recent book, Courting the Wild Twin, and we'll be talking uh, about nature, about myth, and about story and and uh, how we can... Um, how story can enrich and inform our deepening uh, in wild times. Um, so welcome uh, to Connect the Dots, Martin Shaw. So glad to have you with us today. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. So I've been, you know, I finished your book. In fact, I kept delaying the interview because I wanted to read According to the Wild Twin slowly. <laughs> rather than kind of gallop to you know through it to get it finished i was kind of dragging it out so that it wouldn't end um but i wanted to have completed it you know before we we spoke and i think um i mean that that kind of reflects something very special um about the book and about um about the the storytelling and myth, and it, you know, I have to say it brought me back to some of my own roots, which I may discuss a little bit more uh, onward into the conversation, Um, but you have devoted your whole life to myth and storytelling, and, um, you know, why? <laughs> I don't want to give you some like summary type question, you know, that then you have to like enca- encapsulate as if you're writing a course for a university catalog or something. But why, why, why are myths and storytelling um, so essential? Great question. Uh, I think my interest in it all began through financial poverty. Uh, When I was a child, I grew up in a house where we didn't have a lot of money. So there was no television, there was no car, there was no telephone. But there were a lot of books, a lot of conversation. And behind the house, uh, there was a great forest. So this kind of entanglement of story and place was with me 
from a very early age because, quite honestly, I didn't have many distractions. Uh, books were always a place where I went for my imagination to do its yoga. That's the way I've been thinking about it today. Stories are a kind of yoga for the imagination. And in the kind of time we're actually in right now, you know, lockdown, uh, I can't see a more important medium, to be honest, or certainly it's as important as anything else I can think than thinking in myth. Because long before we had, you know, iPads or journals or anything like that, we had the currency of story to deepen our circumstance. And the kind of unique moment for all of us right now is that we are all in this. This isn't happening to a depressed friend or a sick relative. This is across the board, this kind of enforced contemplation. So it's a kind of it's a very difficult for some people, but also transformational and potentially kind of accelerating moment. Stories traffic in the day that everything changed. So in other words, the stories as a culture we choose to remember are not the day which was just like the last one. It's the day when you were tested to your very limits, to your core. And so... As I got older, and this is an identical story, I'm sure, to the majority of the people listening, you grow older, you go through heartbreak, you go through illness, you go through divorce, you go through depression, and you're looking, if not for a roadmap exactly, you're looking for things that point, point a way to deepening your understanding of the experience. And it was then that I remembered the stories I'd loved as a kid in that little house in Devon in England in the early 70s. So I went back and reread Grimm's, reread the Arthurian stories, but carrying the weight of an older man rather than a child. And suddenly, to my astonishment, these stories kind of, they exfoliate like a flower. The more attention you give them, the more reward. So it was lovely for me to hear you just then talking about you delaying the ending of courting the wild twin. That's perfect because in a way, the more, the more you drag it out, the more moisture or the more nourishment you're going to get. So to be honest, my story begins with lack and limit, but within that limit, I managed to go deeper. And that's really when the stories have been my f very faithful companion now for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you begin in an entirely different place? Because it sounds like it was a very natural evolution out of your own childhood. Or did you, you know, make an attempt at, uh, you know, kind of uh, more civilized uh uh, life and then come back to this or you know what just curious about that yeah. well when i was young the work that i do now uh, if we use the word mythologist storyteller wilderness rites of passage i had no idea that any of that existed these just were not terms that people around me used so i wouldn't have had any idea that there was even a model 
for what I'm doing now. Of course, there is, but I didn't know about it. So the nearest I ever got to respectability was being a rock and roll musician. That's as, that's as conventional as I ever got. When I was about 11, my dad put drums in front of me because he's a drummer. And the discipline of, the discipline of playing, which was great because I wasn't doing well at school. I was not encouraged. Every report I ever had told that told me that I was a dreamer, which actually turned out to be rather true. Uh, so the only other thing that I've ever done is play the drums and travel as a musician. But by my early 20s, so this is again well over 20 years ago, even that seemed rather domestic. In actual fact, I lost, in, I lost interest in rock and roll as, a, as an art form for a while. I love it now, but it's, it's like anything in life. If you do something a lot, you can get weary of it. So it was only when actually my own life, my own attempts to play music, an early marriage that had disintegrated, it was only when a lot had fallen away that ironically, I actually found out what it was I wanted to do with my life. But as I've said, um, there were no guarantees because the kind of things I was interested in, I simply had no sense of how you could ever, you know, uh, put bread on the table or earn a living from it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That makes, uh, that makes sense, uh, for sure. Um, it's funny because, um, I've had a recurring <clears throat> encounter with this field um, without, uh, you know, ever thinking to take it up, although I I am kind of a, you know, nonfiction storyteller, really. That's what a reporter and journalist is and does and yes. stuff like that. Um, because I uh, encountered both Joseph Campbell and Victor Turner at various turns of my life and was uh, instructed, you know, by then learned from them and, you know, had the opportunity for uh, being influenced by them. So, um, you know, so, and of course, Campbell, <laughs> you know, had this prodigious work of looking into, you know, multiple mythics of all cultures. Um, and, you know, Turner, um also kind of returned um, myth and ritual and initiation um, to its rightful place at the core of uh, what had become a more economically and academically oriented field of anthropology. Um, so, but, you know, I was, I, I kind of felt in reading this book um, according to the Wild Twin, that I was, it was almost like back to the beginning. Um, you know, the theme of the book, I don't, I, you know, I sort of don't want to spoil it by, uh, describing it or anything, but, you know, it is to do, um, with twins and with the kind of wished for twin that's the embodiment of, um, the highest virtues that a culture prizes, and then this additional twin who, who is embodying something else. Um, 
I don't know if that sets a frame for you to talk a little bit about the book, um, or, you know, or it the does. theme. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, no, that's wonderful. First of all, I would like to say how lucky how lucky you were early on in life to come across people like Victor Turner and Campbell. Um, England, England has a different root system, in a way, in terms of this kind of information. So I was growing up with different writers. I mean, I've worked a lot in America now, so I'm very familiar with the, the sort of the world of Joseph Campbell, and I'm a huge admirer of Victor Turner. And I consciously lent on some of Victor Turner's ideas in Courting the Wild Twin. So I'm very pleased that you caught that. Um, Yeah, there is a very old idea, a very old idea. You get it in tribal societies, you get it in folk tales, and it's very simple. The night or the day you were born, you had a twin that was effectively sent into exile, thrown out of the window, abandoned. You're not told about this twin. So you grow up and at some point, usually in adolescence or your early 20s, you begin to hear rumors of this twin that culture at large would rather you did not know about. And so the fairy tales that I have explored, they're two very specific stories that deal with this, are how on earth in modernity, in modern life, because these old stories exist perfectly in our time, how would we call an exiled energy like that back into relationship with our life? And what is the kind of trouble we can expect? So in other words, if you sent something into exile 20 years ago, they're not going to come back thrilled. They're probably going to come back furious. And so the story really explores through, or the book explores through anecdotes, uh, personal recollections, the stories themselves, how we deal all the way through our lives with energies that we long sent, long were sent into exile, either by us or by our immediate family. In other words, the more we behave, the more we are domesticated. Um, our connection with that gets thinner and thinner and thinner. So the book really is a kind of um, an attempt to explore how we could, as I said, using the title says it really, how do we court these these beings back? I actually wrote it almost in, not quite in one sitting, but it was something like it. It was very unusual. If A, a book normally will take me years uh, and that, although it's a small book, it still took days. That uh, doesn't mean the quality of the book is effective. It, it affected in any way. It just means that that was the moment where those ideas, those thoughts, those images were going to arrive at the desk. So I wrote it all, all out almost in a fever, sent it off to Chelsea Green. And the delight now is now I actually have the book in front of me. To some degree, I've forgotten an enormous amount of what I wrote there. So in ironically, get this, in lockdown, I'm being educated by the book I wrote before lockdown. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Very wow. odd. Yeah. I, uh, what are you uh, learning from it <laughs> that you didn't know? 
Well, um, first of all, I most books, I'm, I'm sure you've experienced this as a journalist, there are things no one is a harsher critic of their of the work usually than the author themselves. But because I have this distance from it, I've been softer with it than I normally would. I, I enjoy it as a piece of work. Um, it is, what am I learning from it? What is the instruction from it? The instruction from it actually is to stick with the uncomfortability of this moment that we're culturally in. Mm-hmm. to really stay curious to the discomfort rather than, to be honest, trying to cram my life with distractions. Um, if you, if I really want to have a relationship with the wild twin, they're not going to be attracted to me if I'm continually multitasking. The wild twin for me right now is this experience. That's how it's actually shown up. It said, okay, so, so for example, I am now five weeks. I live alone in a cottage. Uh, I've gone about five weeks. I really haven't seen anybody other than I get to see my daughter a bit, who's a teenager. Um, and, you know, it reminds me of wilderness rites of passage. But the difference is if you go out and fast in the hill, on the hill, you have some kind of community to return to. But we're all doing this. We're it, to one to one to a greater degree or not. We're all doing it. So at the moment, what I'm learning about is not naming this experience too quickly. The book seems to be telling me just to sit in it and let the story tell you what it is, rather than tell the story what it is. If that makes any sense. Yes, I totally. It totally makes sense, and that's one of the reasons why. You know, I wasn't trying to tell or frame the story in a certain kind of way because, um, you know, then it becomes like, you know, this marketing description that kind of sits upon the thing and has an unpleasant weight of crushing it. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, My medium in this... You know, I I write articles and, you know, uh, for different publications, and I also do a lot of um, curating of content and commenting on on things that are happening in public life, as well as, you know, having a circle of people who are reading and commenting and discussing and contending and, you know, bemoaning and all kinds of, uh, all of those kinds of things. Um, And... I have to say that my own experience in this time is that all that is happening, the tenor of everything that is happening outside of the place that one is sheltering and that is creating the systems and structures and happenings of the world as they devolve, it seems seemingly in many different ways, or, you know, people um, call for what would be wonderful to progress, you know. Um, It's almost like having been so engaged in the middle of that and very optimistic about uh, what we collectively could bring about, um, 
you know, there is through the through both the the drive of the historic circumstances as well as the contrast, you know, between the uh, introspective at home experience and this kind of tumult. Um, you know, the question that keeps coming up for me is we can name these things. Many of them are horrible. Um, we can grieve them. Um, but the sense that, and you know, I'm one who's always recruited people to a sense of agency. So mm-hmm. the sense that we have agency to do something or to influence, you know, seems more questionable to me. And yeah. I'm not sure if it's because it's true or because I'm feeling it more mm-hmm. because of the context mm-hmm. that we're all in, because of the space to feel it more. Yeah, that that's where I am too. That's where I am too. The way I, I would think about it uh, in my line of work is, descri- is to describe it like this. If we are going through what you could loosely call an initiation experience, the way that I understand that term in my own practice with wilderness rites of passage is that you leave the familiar, you go out into a forest or on the top of the hill, and for four days and nights you fast, you know, in the old Lakota sense of the word, crying for vision, looking for a way forward, deeply contemplating. But it is only on the return from that encounter does any real wisdom grow. It can't be hurried, in other words. So I I grow concerned sometimes that we culturally are not at the moment yet where the real insights are going to come because we simply haven't brooded long enough. Now, I get, I'm actually under attack from a lot of my friends who say, listen, it's a nice idea, but we simply don't have the time for that. We've got to think on our feet right now. It has to be rapid response. But any tribal group that I've ever been around, I think, would counter that desire for action with some real contemplation at this moment. And for me, I know something is valuable when it makes me feel uncomfortable. And the fact that I am trying to just sit in this, because for me, I have a few insights, but I don't have it. I don't yet have, I haven't returned from this experience yet. In other words, in the language of Victor Turner that you used, we're in the liminal. And when you're in the liminal, that's the moment to have the experience, but not to theorize about the experience. That's that's something that comes when you return from it. Can you um, tell our listeners a little bit more about the liminal? Because when even saying his name, Victor Turner, that word comes up right along with it. And I don't think it's uh, widely understood, you know, in terms yeah. of its meaning and all. Of course I would. Liminal is a really interesting word because it's a very broad, it describes a very broad spectrum of experience. Liminal could be as uh, amplified as a kind of spiritual or religious encounter, like the burning bush in the desert, or it could be you on a train daydreaming out of a window for an hour between cities. 
but it seems to be a moment where you drift, where you are unshackled from your usual job description as a mother or as a journalist or as a writer or as a member of any particular community, and your imagination takes a walk. Now, in a rite of passage or an initiation, that gets accelerated and amplified to the point of, uh, you know, visionary experiences. But the liminal, in the way that I understand it, and I think the way Turner was getting at, is when you are temporarily broken free from the normal restrictions of your thought into something bigger. There's a very old idea that you get, again, in tribal setups, but you also get it in the Renaissance, that a human soul is not entirely in, the, in their own body. That you, As you walk around in your life, your soul, for the most part, is outside of you, not inside. So you, all this kind of Western stuff where we're always kind of clutching our chest and talking about our soul is seen as a bit naive. The real soulful encounters happen outside of us. Uh, and so to be in the liminal is to be very aware of soul inaction around us. But that's a little description of the liminal that I would say. Now, whilst we're on the subject, though, Victor Turner has another word that is very similar to liminal, but is a little different in emphasis. And it's this word liminoid. Now, liminoid is when you have the experience of the liminal, but you are unable to make much of it. So a liminal experience, to be honest, could be the excruciating uh, ending of a love affair. And for a while, you can't eat, you can't sleep, but God Almighty, in some strange way, you've never felt so alive. That's the liminal. And if you pay attention to that, over time, that can become wisdom. And you know it's wisdom because you are able to share it and give it to other people. But the liminoid is when you had, <laughs> you had the horrendous divorce, but your mouth grew bitter from it, not wise. And that for me is very interesting that trauma alone is not necessarily sacred. The context and the deeper brooding in that is what can make all the difference. Hmm. Hmm. Wow, that's brilliant. Yes, that makes sense. And then for that too, you need um, you need time. I mean, you need um, to slow down the pace and stretch it out. You know, rather than to precipitate. Um, that. Yeah, that that's it. And I mean, I'm as impatient as any as anyone else is. I love part of the speed of modern life and modernity. But I know by and large, and I remember saying this actually in Courting the World Twin, uh, the quick route is very rarely your friend. Mm -hmm. The quick route is very rarely your friend. And I'm as addicted to it as anyone else. But when I'm really paying attention uh, I, I try and slow things down a little. Actually, um, you again, thinking of you slowing down your reading of the book, the great Irish poet Seamus Heaney said a sweet thing. He said, he said, when I was younger and I was writing books, it was always a race to the finish. 
You know, I wanted the big climax. That's what I was pushing for with all my youthful energy. And he says, of course, when I get older, and of course, we can relate to this to all, all sorts of other erotic activities, I want to slow the whole thing down. I want it to take as long as I possibly can. And I really want to linger over the sheer joy of creation. Uh, so that's an, an that's a, you know, Seamus Sini is definitely one of my uh, honorary elders. So I, I, I try and pay attention to that. Hmm. Yeah, that also, um, I mean, I think it has to do with the aging process over a lifetime, too, because, you know, when one is building and establishing and trying to get somewhere and um, thinking that there's somewhere to get, that's very different than um, when in a, um, you know, a time in the life cycle that's bending the curve more toward mortality in the end and also with a planet that, uh, you know, with an Earth um, and a system that is, um, you know, basically uh, on the, you know, has been on the, on a route of very destructive um behavior and, um, you know, hasn't course corrected yet. Um, so, you know, there's all, there's also a lot of, um, you know, intimations of mortality or potentials for mortality, uh, in, uh, the more mature part of the life cycle and also very much in this time where, um, people are dying, you know, um, and how do we, what do we uh, make of that? You know, uh, I mean, any, this is a little off topic, but since we're talking about the time as well, I'd be, you know, interested um, to hear your perspective on any of those questions. Well, <laughs> very big questions. Uh, yeah, people are dying. People are dying. It's beginning to creep uh, imperce not imperceptibly, but very perceptibly into my family, friends of family, uh, are, uh, are dying here and there. Uh, and it was ever thus, you know, in any village, there's always an old man dying in a hut and there's always children playing by the stream 30 yards away. Uh, it absolutely is part of the inexorable cycle of life. We are incredibly defended against it most of us by the time we get older we start to experience it but but i i think it is a shock that a very sort of clear and present danger has arrived and one of the things i have been counseling really is for us for us that are raising younger children to take care of the anxiety levels that come into the house with this information. I do believe that as parents, we are caretakers. And I see some of my friends so sort of spun out by the information they have about coronavirus, far more than they actually need at this moment. Their children are absolutely tied up in knots. And I think to some degree, we need to curate that. It doesn't mean that we don't talk candidly to our children about the nature of our times, but also the opportunity 
of the times that we're in, as you've said, that actually it could be their generation. Hopefully we'll also have something to do with it that changes the mood uh, of, of our times. So that's all that I can say about it at present. I actually did something as a storyteller that I've never done before, which is because I have, I, you know, I have a, a child and I have lots of nieces and nephews and godchildren dotted around the place. For the first time ever, I just made little videos of me telling stories for kids. You know, my, my clientele is usually somewhere between, you know, 20 and 103. But actually, I found it a really lovely thing to do to sit down with very meaty little folk tales and tell them as if there was a group of, uh, you know, seven to 10 year olds in front of me. So now I, fi I finally, for the first time in my life, I have this cherub army of support. I've had <laughs> hundreds of letters from families, from little kids, from all the way from Hawaii to Alaska to Australia to New Zealand, all these little kids getting turned on to myth because the deal is I'll tell them the story, but then they have to tell it to someone else. You know, the oral tradition, you're very familiar with this. So in in all of this I've got off my high horse and done something I never expected to do, which is to tell stories to kids. And it is the best thing ever. And if anybody is listening to this and they've got a story, you know, get it out there, get it around a virtual campfire and start telling the stories because not only will they nurture some of the people around you, you yourself will get a full battery charge by passing it on. Yes, that's very, I mean, a lot of that goes on on Facebook. I, there's a lot of, uh, you know, not mythic, but true life experience storytelling. Yeah. Uh, I know I do, I do a lot of it because all the, uh, different things that come sifting through bring up different learning moments of various kinds. Where can people find your, um, stories online? I mean, can, are they online so that children can access them or their parents can? Two places. Uh, one is, you know, uh, you literally can find me on Facebook, Martin Shaw. You'll see my uh, bearded face very quickly on there. And you go to my page. Anybody can see it. It's public. And I post videos there. But also on Vimeo, uh, if you put in Dr. Martin Shaw, you'll get actually all the videos plus many, many others that have been made about me or my work over the last two or three years. So Vimeo, Dr. Martin Shaw, Facebook Martin Shaw, uh, and they're all free. Uh, so please, I encourage anybody, A, learn the stories yourself, pass them on, uh, and enjoy the videos. And if you like them, please share them. Wonderful. Yeah, I hope, uh, I, I'm going to definitely do that because I <clears throat> post on Facebook a lot of cultural events and uplifting events and, you know, music and, and because we really, uh, need the, uh, soul food, um, to, you know, sustain through these times. Um, and, uh, I know I do, so I sort of assume everyone does. And that's, that's, I think it's really, uh, it's a great provision when we're stockpiling our provisions. Um, let, let, take another pathway into your book, Courting the Wild Twin. Um, I, you know, I don't, 
I'm not sure where this will take us, but, you know, just to briefly say for listeners, without spoiling the book, there are, um, there's much in it, and part of what's in it are two tales of two different uh, twins and wild twins. And, uh, and they're kind of parallel stories, but different uh, in their own ways. And the, one of the distinguishing uh, features is that in one case, the twins are uh, male twins, and in the other, they are female twins. Um, and, you know, I, I'm just, uh, I, I don't know, I, I don't have a specific question about that, but I would love to hear you reflect on, um, you know, some of the, uh, what emerges when these very parallel stories are told um, for one of the two of our multiple genders, you know, that exist and all. That's a, a, a great a great inquiry, uh, you know, not quite a question, but an inquiry, which is really good. It's interesting, isn't it? I think in the last in the last thirty years, anybody that's listening to this that enjoys and reads myth are probably well, maybe aware of two writers. One is Clarissa Pinkola Estes, who wrote Women That Run With The Wolves. The second one is my old mentor, Robert Bly, who wrote a book called Iron John. Now, both of these books that kind of, they open up the 1990s, they're right at the beginning of the 90s. They opened up a conversation where myth really became an incredible way about talking about gender, addressing a gender, you know, gender, and all the kind of gradients between men and women. Um, I have always worked, interestingly, primarily in my own school, which I have, I've always worked with mixed groups. That's always given me the greatest pleasure. Uh, I have worked with um, groups of men at men's conferences, which is fine. But I have to tell you something. Um, by and large, I don't think that my work would have existed without specifically the support of women. Women tend to buy more books, as far as I can tell. Uh, so so straight away, there's two things going on. One is that I'm raising a daughter. I'm not raising a son. So there's a kind of particular attention that I have around the feminine because the thing that I love most in the world is this little girl. So I wanted her to grow up not just absorbing these stories, but to be actually able to tell them herself. So when you have a four-year-old girl learning a story like Tatterhood, which is in the book, which is an incredible um, reflection on what is it, what is it like to live a life not crippled by shame? What is it to really, what does it mean to really show up to the party? Uh, the poet Rilke has a, a line. He says, wherever I am folded, there I am a lie. And as we get older and we get more distanced from the twin, I find that I get more and more folded. And what these books do is they open our wingspan again. Beautiful thing. So I know for me, one of the stories is about the success of growing up in proximity to the wild twin, the gorgeous, 
vivacity of the kind of character you can grow into. But the other story, ironically, the twin of the twin, is a story about what happens when that doesn't occur. Uh, it's a story called The Lindworm, where actually you do not have access to the vitality and the wit of the wild twin. You're rather leaden in your behavior. There's a kind of energy missing. You don't have the energy to galvanize yourself. You don't have the energy to vote. You don't have the energy to really be involved in much. That would, in mythic terms, and actually the, in the words of someone I'm sure we're familiar with, at least as a name, William Blake, it's the phrase pinpricks of the eternal. There's not enough eternity in your day. These are stories that whether you're a man or a woman or whatever, however you choose to identify yourself, we all need more than the facts of the matter. The facts of the matter uh, tend to give us burnout, especially if we're activists. I work with hundreds over a period of a year, probably thousands of people involved in activism. And one of the things that I'm always advising is, listen, if you keep staring into hell, without any artistry, you're going to experience burnout. Mm -hmm. And we don't want you to have burnout. We want you to be nourished and we want you to say hard things when you've got to say them, but we want your soul to be edified and protected in the process. It's like these myths where you're encountering a monster and if you look at the monster, they can turn you to ashes. But if you look at the reflection of the beast on your shield, You've got some negotiation. For me, stories like the ones in the book are the shields as we face the monster. They're a kind of artistry where we get a reflection of the situation. But if we keep looking only directly at it, if there's no beauty sewn into the conversation, uh, then most of us get wiped out pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's an amazing insight. Um, you know, what I, uh, you know, speaking as an activist, one of, the, one of the things I really like about it is that um, what I've often noticed is that um, uh, when sort of self-described spiritual people who were more focused on a life of giving themselves uh, nourishing experiences and celebrating that, and who were then therefore kind of disengaged from acknowledging the inequities, which are, you know, possibly unethical and unspiritual, uh, there's a kind of disconnect. And so then that is turned, you know, critically toward activists. And, um, you know, and there's always a sort of sense of moral superiority in avoiding that particular dilemma. Um, that you just so aptly described, where um, your framing of it is actually uh, protective and supportive. Um, And, you know, so I really honor that because, you know, when, you know, very often I'm proposed uh, to have different authors of spiritual works um, who are, you know, from the American let's fix it tradition or something, you know, come on the program. And the, um, you know, the wild twin of what our constructed world costs the people we don't see, 
you know, um, is unacknowledged, and therefore the cosmology always seems really flawed to me. Uh, and I, I, I don't want to get into a debate about that, so I frequently just tell the publicists, you know, forget it. So, <laughs> but you somehow, um, through the Earth connection, and the connection to the wild and to myth are holding the entire thing in a in a in a much more um uh, integral way and you know thank you for that really thank you well thank you uh a little clue that I learned early and and has really stood by me well is this. Once you've led a rite of passage out in the bush, if you've actually gone through that. The easy thing to do is to presume that the experience is now finished. It culminated in your return. But actually, from an indigenous perspective, that kind of contemplation, divorced from action, is a malfunction. It hasn't worked. It, it, it is, it is in the end a form of vanity. Yet, it's yet again. Uh, a human being going out into the into the wider earth and using it as a backdrop whilst they attempt to you know fix themselves the older way is much more profound than that where actually if it's worked what you do with the encounter is to find a communicable art form that in the end edifies others that doesn't mean you showboat about it. It doesn't mean that you become a guru. It doesn't mean that you use it as a form of spiritual one-upmanship. But it's just something you quietly carry about with you uh, in, in whatever form it shows up in, whether it's your writing or your storytelling or the way you build a boat or the way you run a nursery or the way you look after your mother. But in some way, some kind, and it's a beautiful word actually, kindness moves from you in this, some real deep down proper goodness. And that, if you're in a tribal community, that's when they say, ah, this, this worked, something actually happened. So what I'm always looking for in the teachers that inspire me is the gifting in what they're saying. It almost, to some degree, it's what they're saying but I'm always listening to why they're saying it. And are they really moving something on? And if they are, they have my loyalty for life. Oh, it's beautiful. You know, since you mentioned the indigenous, um, you know, I, you know, I, I would love to hear you share, you know, your, uh, you know, any kind of experience or, um, you know, kind of what that holds, what the indigenous way holds that, um, you know, we don't, we don't have that much opportunity to see or experience perhaps, or maybe some of us do in, uh, you know, in contemporary life. Mm. Good, good, again, great inquiry. Um, one of the things I was, I deliberately did with Courting the Wild Twin was use two not terribly well-known fairy tales. I did that because I felt whoever was reading the book of whatever pigment 
whatever ethnic background, could claim them as their own without any ripple of cultural appropriation. You know, there's no village, there's no village in Yorkshire in England that's going to say we're very angry because you're using the story of the lindworm for your own soulful benefit. It's it. They belong in a kind of commons of the imagination. However, as you travel the world, you realize a very interesting thing that some stories, some myths, some folk tales have a universality to them. They're designed to travel, they're nomadic. Now, this is what Campbell was getting at with the hero of a thousand faces. There are pressure points that we all recognize from the human experience. But on the other hand, there are stories that come from a very particular place. And they refer to a bend in the river where the salmon meet. They refer to a particular set of mountains. They have a kind of sacred uh, geography to them that when the story is told, they are renaming and re-enchanting the world over and over again. Mm. Those are not stories that I would choose to tell if I didn't come from that culture. Uh, that for me is, is when I'm careful about, uh, you know, you, you preach each story with caution and you figure out how do I feed this story? How do I edify? It? Is it willing to travel with me or not? Um, but years ago, I was sitting with a, an African, a very well-known African teacher, a tribal leader, and he suddenly turned to me on my right in front of a group full of people and said, this is an indigenous teacher. He's not American, he's British, and his people have been in that part of Britain for hundreds and hundreds of years. He has an indigenosity of a sort. Now, whether or not that's correct, I don't really know. It was a nice thing to hear. But it is interesting to me that the British predicament around land, story, all of that is, is a little different to when I'm over in America. I mean, the fascinating thing for me about America is that in Celtic myth, whenever you go west – you head into what we call the other world. That's a place you go to heal. It's a place where people go to die. But it's not our world. It's the other world. So when the ships sailed off, it's only 20 miles down the road from where I'm talking to you. When they sailed off from Plymouth or they sailed off from Galway, from a, an English or a British or a European perspective, you're sort of sailing into the other world. And whenever I'm teaching in America, I'm always aware that to some degree I'm having, I'm off my native ground. Mm -hmm. And that is a fascinating thing for me. I have been luckily in the company of uh, many indigenous tribal groups since I've been in America. And we've always just got on well. There's always just been a sense of, for God's sake, keep doing what you're doing. Because actually the world is on fire and any cultural vitality that we can find right now we desperately need so i i've been in uh there's a tribe in northern california called the miwok i have been at the very center of the longhouse in their deep and magical celebrations of the young men and the young women becoming adults and the story they want to hear at that moment is a european fairy tale 
Isn't that extraordinary? That kind of back and forth. And for me, if it's done, if everybody understands the sort of spiritual authority of the moment, that it's not cheap, it's actually sacred, sometimes this can happen. And so I'm very grateful for when it does, but I'm also very careful about the stories that I tell. That's so interesting. Um, I, I I really enjoy that perspective because um, instead of talking about what the indigenous hold, you're speaking of your learning uh, about mm. story through them, uh, through the encounters with them and and all and um, uh, you know so that so and that's a form of uh, care humility and reverence um, toward, you know, those most ancient and enduring uh, in their culture on this planet. I think we're coming to the end of our show fairly soon, so I just want to um, alert listeners um, to look for Martin Shaw's book. We've been speaking um, with storyteller, um, folklorist, mythologist, scholar and author Martin Shaw uh, and uh, mostly about um, his book Courting the Wild Twin but um, actually Martin is quite prolific. Um, You can go to his Facebook page and find some of his uh, video storytellings for children. He's written a whole bunch of books so I have something to look forward to here. Uh, Cinder Bider with Tony Hoagland, The Night Wages, Wolf Milk, um, Courting the Dawn, po- Poems of Lorca with Stefan Harding, The Five Fathoms, Miss Teller Trilogy, and many more. Courting the Wild Twin is published by Chelsea Green Publishing, um, a U.S. publisher, um, and highly recommended uh, for reading in these sheltering times. Um, thank you so much uh, for being with us today on Connect the Dots Martin, um, and maybe, you know, any, any, any parting words, um, to our listeners for this time and, and for when we come out of it, because you've spoken, you've said that the initiation is upon the return. So I'd love to hear any, you know, additional, um, you know, learnings you have to offer about that. Thank you. Uh, first of all, I would simply like to say, take courage. Dig in, take courage. And I don't know, the, I have no idea the age of the folk that are listening, but I know that as I get older, sometimes it's hard to have a sense of personal self-esteem. But I'm going to ask all of us to make a very rash thought. And it's that actually... This moment in your life has arrived perfectly on time for you to do a little work and really think about the way you want to carry yourself when you want you get out the other end of this. What business with your soul is it most appropriate to have a reckoning or a conversation with? Could it be that you come out the other side of this? as a carrier of story, not just myths, but the stories that edify and nurture your family or immediate community. So if you've ever thought to yourself, you know, one day I'd like to end up on the hill or, you know, I really should go out and spend some time in the bush. 
well, maybe that moment has come. So my my final urging really would be to take this seriously, to take courage and to listen deeply to what is being disclosed specifically to you. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's really, really, really a generous and beautiful thing to say for everyone to take in and absorb. Um, we've been talking to Martin Shaw uh, on this edition of Connect the Dots. I uh, will be back next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. Um, and, you know, my usual show salutation uh, is, uh, you know, heads up, keep stand tall, keep marching forward in company with all our relations. But because of the nature of the time we're in, you know, it's really about um, sit, be still, and connect with your innate connection to all our relations um, and, uh, you know, deepen into, into that connection. Thank you for being with us on today's Connect the Dots, Martin Shaw. And thank you, listeners, for being with us. We'll be back next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. I'm Allison Rose Levy. Be thank well. you. Bye-bye.